You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. wife's been gone a week. She went to Canada after a church last Sunday morning. And uh, I haven't had a party. And I haven't uh, done much different than I normally do, except I haven't eaten very well by choice. Uh, I'll throw the cookies away when I get home so she doesn't see them. I have been uh, torturing my brain just a bit about this next sequence of sermons because I took on something that's bigger than I can take on. These four words I talked about that are on our website are exaltation, our praise. Okay, that's not too tough. But then you get to uh, the next few words, our exhortation today, our exhortation. And uh, it can't just be today. The entire Bible is exhortive <laughs> from cover to cover. And I can't take you through that. To try and define that word uh, for us. And what I'm trying to do, again, is remind us that as we, as we express who we are through these sort of uh, umbrella words, we exalt Christ here. Not just here, but hopefully in our personal lives. We exhort here through God's word. We'll define that in a moment. Then we edify each other here through different things that we do in Christ. And then hopefully we uh, share God's word as we evangelize, uh, carry that word of God to others who don't know him. And to uh, try to express what exhortation is, is impossible in a few thoughts. And as I tried, uh, tried to go through this, I began to realize that there's so much to unpack with this word. Uh, what, what are exhortations? Let me just help us understand where I'm going here. What are exhortations? Exhortations are truths from God's word coming to us in the form of divine commands, divine counsel, divine encouragement and divine warnings. And literally, it is the Word of God instructing us with these forms of... And the word divine, I'm using the word divine there because it must be God's Word and God's Word only that is that thing we latch onto and say, I need to respond to something. I need to hear this. I need to be affected by this. It's only God's word that we uh, find in, in value here. And so when we talk about exhorting, we're talking about taking God's word and causing it to be not only effective in our own personal lives, but we want to share God's word to each other to see its effect on all of us. We want this church to be uh, responsive, responsive and uh, reactive to God's exhortation, God's directions to us through his commands, counsel, encouragement, yes, and warnings. And, and you could start in many places. I, I wanted to begin by just saying there are exhortations, first of all, from the Father and also the Son. And I'm just going to capstone those by saying when uh, we read in Deuteronomy 6, we have the Lord saying, you shall love the Lord with uh, the Lord, uh, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. In uh, verses 5 through 7, he ends with this. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. What I'm going to go through is I'm going to try to pull out key truths of exhortation that our church stands on. If you were looking under the hood about 
what we teach, what we adhere to, what we believe, then what are some key components of that that would be distinctive of who we are as believers and especially of those uh, as a part of Alpine Bible Church? And as I start this off, I'm already in a, in a mode of responding to just that statement. I'm thinking the creator of the universe has to basically direct our thoughts toward what he wants from us. And if you uh, look through the, from the Old Testament to New Testament, you'll see that Jesus picks the same theme up, that he has to actually instruct us how to respond to who he is. We're talking about the, the creator who has graciously and mercifully created us in his image so he could have a relationship with us. But because of sin and our rejection of him, going clear back to the Garden of Eden, God has to literally direct us in what to do with him. Because we've lost the, the compass of, of who we are. And so men and women and kids are wandering around this world, you know, trying to figure out what life's all about, make it make sense to themselves, figure it out for themselves and sort of figure out who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to do with my life? And here's the creator of the universe giving this basic instruction. You shall love the Lord your God. That's primary. That, that's the first thing that the creator asks of us, or directs us to do. And then he says this, and I don't want just surface response. I don't want ritualistic religion. I don't want just repetitious uh, stuff that you do every week and you say with your lips that you love me. I, as he says, it must be in your heart. It's the first thing he says. I pray that uh, somehow we have that core truth in us that... We love God for who he is, and his love is so in our heart that we want to teach our kids diligently that truth. And it doesn't mean that our kids are going to pick up the heart response to that issue. They, uh, the danger is our kids will pick up the verbiage, uh, I'm supposed to love God. Okay, I'll love God. I, I'm not going to go to hell if I love God. So our kids pick this stuff up, and they repeat it. Like parrots, they kind of repeat it, and, and that's great. But at some point in the journey, they too must have a hard experience. So you cannot sit in this church and say, I love God. And if it is not in your heart, you don't have the capacity to understand what that means. It has to be a core truth that's inside that's changed you and affected you that you can't help but say, I love the one who I've discovered loves me. Right? Right? That should define us. That's, that's such an important thing to, to say. You can also find other statements he's made. You can go through uh, the Old Testament. You'll find all the thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots of his, of his law and things that he has said to us, all based for our good. But then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and he has as well so many exhortations. And I, I can tell you that if we read Matthew chapter 4, the, one of the first things he says is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes on. And so I'm going to track some of the words of Jesus. I'm going to try and stay in the Gospel of John. If you could just find your way there, we're going to track through the Gospel of John. And key statements that Jesus has made that we say we believe as a church, that we hold dear these statements. We all know the encounter with uh, the religious man Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So many things that Jesus has said. But uh, obviously that which is distinctive for us is when in the conversation Jesus says in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There has to be something happened to us that we would call ourselves being born again. That phrase has been used and abused for uh, the last, I don't know how many centuries. But Jesus goes on to explain in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus, listening to this, and obviously Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 14, And as Moses was lifted up 
uh, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He's using an illustration in the Old Testament when people sinned and God had uh, Moses take a, a snake and put it on a stake and hold it up in the air. And it was a, a symbol of, uh, if you will look on what I'm doing, and, and death is basically, death is conquered by me, and you look at me and you'll find healing and, and my presence. But if you don't look in faith, then what you have in this plague will take your life. It was an illustration. So when he says that, he reminds them of that history. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, talking about the cross, that whoever believes in him, as they look on the one who is dying in our place, anyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We believe that. Now, we have said that all of our lives. Those of us who are long life Christians, we were taught that in Sunday school and we learned that verse and we have uh, grown up believing that verse in some form. We, we, we would say that and I said that as a young kid, but until it actually takes hold in your life and you really understand that and it transforms you as you truly yield yourself to that truth. Yes, I do believe that. I believe that so much so that it has, uh, I'm allowing that to become my life. And he says, it's, it's a spiritual birth that takes place when we acknowledge what he's done for us and we believe it with all of our heart. There's this transaction that takes place. He causes us to be born again spiritually, born again in the sense of the spirit in our lives. It's wonderful. Another statement that Jesus makes that's so critically attached to this is over in John 5. And in John 5, as Jesus again is teaching, he's just healed a man. We're going to see that in a moment. But then on the tail end of that experience of healing someone, in verse 16, he says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus because... Obviously, Jesus told the man to no longer sin. And, well, how can he tell someone not to sin? And, of course, he did a miracle on the Sabbath, which was against the law in their minds. Jesus answered them in verse 17. Jesus answered, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, this, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's this strong statement about who Jesus is. And the fact that we should give honor and glory to the Son just like we might be doing to the Father. If we want to say the Father is, is all holy and we are to bow before Him in like manner, we are to see the Son in exactly the same way and honor Him to the exact same degree as we do the Father. And that is not true in many places and in many churches where Jesus is not seen as God. And we try to demean who Jesus is and make him more human than he is uh, God uh, in the flesh. And we try to uh, strip away who he is by the fact of the cross and the fact of his life and that he was born. And so many theologians have just uh, stripped that away. He is God. He is God, folks. Now, here's how much I want to say we should honor him. Uh, in, in John, just, I'll just give you these references. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. In John 12, verse 45, he says, And he who sees me see, has seen the one who sent me. In John 14, verses 7 through 9, and you can turn to that one if you want. I'm going to camp for a second. In John 14, talking about the future and so on with his disciples. 
And there's this discussion again about who he is. He just finished in verse 6 saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he says this, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, as he says that, Philip interrupts, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus comes back and says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Point is made here clear by Jesus himself that he is the visible person of the fatherhood. He is the one that we see. He is the father in flesh. He is the one. So he and the father are, are completely one. I want to go on and just say for just a moment that this must be true. If this is not true, then Jesus could not have paid the price worthy enough for your sin. He had to be God. He has to be God in flesh so that someone who is guiltless and sinless could be the perfect, uh, you know, sacrifice, fully uh, valuable enough to satisfy the price tag of death and sin. And so that is necessary. So as a church here at Alpine Bible Church, we stake our claim on that, right? Don't let anyone else take that away. Now, in the going back to John 5, in that context, I mentioned that he had just healed someone. I want to go back to that for a moment because it brings up an issue in our church. It's a, one of many stories of his healing, and I can't do them all. I thought this was appropriate because of the conversation. So in the text, it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was, there isn't in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now uh, we're, we're going to read in verse four, something that's a little controversial for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. That Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now there's much controversy about whether this is actually true or is this uh, uh, a belief that people had not necessarily true that an angel was actually doing this? Is it, is it folklore? Uh, there's, there's discrepancy about that and that's not the point of the text. But certainly the point is that there's a man here we're going to read about in verse 5, a man who was there, uh, was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And that may be the most important thing that we're going to read here as far as the situation. A guy who has an infirmity for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there and knew he already had been in that condition a long time. And so he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man responds, uh, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps before me. I don't know if he has been doing this for 38 years. If I were the one who had this problem, I don't know why I wouldn't sit like on the steps, get there early and hang on the steps so no one can get in front of me. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure of what's happening here in that, in that regard. What I do know about this text is it brings up an issue that I think I see a lot. Jesus asks him this question, do you want to be made, made well? And there's a lot packed in that question. Because what happens is there are certain people who I think learn to live with sickness. Where, where they become so non-positive. So lack of joy, so full of self-pity that somehow I believe God is often left out of the equation of their life. The idea that God can do anything, that God is all-powerful has left their sense of whatever faith they had. I think there's probably somebody here this morning who lives like that. 
you have something in your life that you struggle with and you in your younger years prayed for God to deliver you and he hasn't done so. And so you live on and on and on, sort of putting up with whatever the condition you might have. And when we talk about God can do anything or God can heal, in the back of your mind, you're saying, well, not me. And in saying that, you're denying God's ability to do anything in anyone's life by saying that. Oh, if someone else gets uh, healed, you may, uh, you may be pleased for them. You may uh, clap, but in the back of your thoughts, there may even be an edge of bitterness. That hasn't happened to me. And it's not just about necessarily something that's physical that we can see. Oftentimes it's internal. Sometimes it's It's emotional. And we all have things in our life that could have caused wounds. And so when Jesus asked this fellow the question, he's going so much deeper than just the guy's there and has a problem. And when this guy's talking about how everyone gets in front of him, there's almost this whining kind of mentality here. This guy has 38 years lived like this, and that's his excuse. And it really probably he doesn't have any faith that if he got in the water, anything would happen. He's not really trying to knock people over to get there. As I analyze this, it just sounds so much like people I know that have the same problem. But if we're going to say this morning that Jesus Christ can do anything, would you say he can? Do you believe he can do anything? Do you believe that he can heal any disease if he chooses to? If we answer yes in the affirmative, then we must in turn act upon the faith to believe that he will heal us. And of course, uh, we evangelicals like to attach this phrase, and I think it's right to do it, according to his will. That has to be in our verbiage. And guess what? The crowd that... Sometimes we pick on them. The crowd is the, what we call the name it, claim it crowd. The crowd that says you should never have to live with sickness. If you had enough faith, that would be gone. That crowd does not like the attachment of according to his will. They say that we're basically saying that our faith is very small. We're, we have a back door. If it doesn't work out, we can say well, it wasn't his will. I want to come back and say, how am I supposed to impose my will over God's? If God wants me to, to be sick for a reason, that's one thing. What God does not want is for someone to accept their sickness and live with a woe is me mentality about it. So when he says, do you want to be made well? The question is running deeper than just a physical issue. The Lord's looking into the depths of this guy's heart and soul, and and there's a transaction that the Lord wants to have take place in this guy's life that will be a life changer. It's not about getting to the water. It's about, it's about do you really want to be made well? And I'm talking about far beyond your expectations. This guy's lost all sense of expectations. So when the guy says, well, sir, no one can get me in the water, is that his hope? And what does Jesus say in verse 8? Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, 38 years of not walking is a big deal. And we know that his muscular system would have been so atrophied, he wouldn't have been able to stand on his own normally. But this fellow, obviously, it says, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And, of course, that set off this whole thing about the Sabbath. That's a secondary story. But Jesus Christ wants us to experience wholeness. And we understand that more took place here than just that kind of healing as you read on in the account. After Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, uh, notice verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Look at this. Sin no more. Oh, wait a minute now, where did that come from? It came from the one who looks in our heart, sees surface issues, 
looks deeper than that and says, this guy's biggest problem was not that he was crippled. His biggest problem was that in his mind, in his heart, in his soul, he was crippled because he had refused to believe there was any hope and he wasn't looking for hope in any of the right places. And this guy had so given up, he really wasn't trying to get in the water anyway because he didn't even believe in that. And so here's the Lord just saying, your problem is that you have an attitude deep inside of doubt and questioning and and surrendering. You've given up. And I want to just challenge you this morning, as some of you may have things in your life, and one thing God wants to do is he wants you to live a victorious life, and it's not about whether something gets healed, it's about whether your whole heart and soul have been affected by him, so that where it doesn't really matter if I'm healed or not. Uh, preaching, one of the mechanics of preaching is getting something out, but there has to be, and not everyone wants to do this, but there has to be a vulnerability. If you think that I'm some kind of Superman and I got it together, I don't. But I can tell you that after I came through my last event, I, as I prayed and asked God to do and have his will in me, I realized that... Uh, Okay, if he brings me through this and I'm okay at the end and if I can get well, which it's all in his will. I mean, I'm not sure why I'm going through this, but I am and here I am. So you're thinking all those thoughts and as God starts to mend and repair and bring you back. Now I'm living with, uh, uh, oh, what's that pain? Oh, what's this pain? Oh, oh, uh, uh, I wonder if something's happening again. And, you know, I, the other day I was working outside and I was picking up bricks to... Uh, I have a shed I have to move in another week, and I'm, I have bricks all around it, so I have to dig all these bricks up and stack them somewhere, and they're paver bricks. They're much heavier than regular bricks, and so I'm, uh, but I, by the time I got done doing that, I was telling the guys last night, my hands were frozen in a position like this. I looked like Igor. I, I, I came in the house like this, and I could not straighten out my fingers. Like, they were just in this position for picking up those bricks for several hours. And then I'm, I took a shower, got out, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll relax, and I'm sitting in a chair, I'm still like, like this, and like, good night, relax, boys, you know, I'm trying to get my hands to rest, I popped a muscle relaxer to get them to relax, and like, you know, and, and you realize, I'm just, I just really am old, it just isn't working, <laughs> it's not the same, but what I don't want to do, what I don't dare want to do, is go into this mode of, oh, woe is me, I, I don't have what I used to have, you know what, I, Folks, we haven't got time for that. It's like, Lord, thank you for the strength you gave me to get that job done. I appreciate that. Yeah, it hurts, but I'm okay. And uh, I'm going to press on tomorrow, and I'm going to press on tomorrow uh, because there isn't much time left. This, uh, this fellow has been healed, and the Lord warns him in this text. This is, this is an exhortative statement. Uh, uh, I've made you well. See you have been made well. Do, do you see what's happened to you? Now, sin no more. Lest, look at this, lest a worse thing come upon you. I, I, I want to challenge us this morning with this, that as a church, we, we believe in healing, but we also believe that there can be triumph and victory in the testimony of those who go through suffering and experience the joy of Jesus Christ going through it because that great testimony is something that someone else needs today. And the Lord looks at our hearts and he's wanting us to respond in a right way. And there's a warning in that, which is don't you dare live your life in this, oh, woe is me mentality where you steal the glory away from the presence of God in your life. He was on the cross for me and on the cross said, Father, forgive them. Uh, he, he didn't, he didn't, uh, he was silent. Uh, his, his demeanor and his majesty, even in death, was a testimony that I have eternal life waiting for me. I don't need to complain about my moments here. And so there's a challenge for all of us when the Lord says, if you don't understand the internal need of living for me and giving me honor, you know what? Maybe something worse can come on your life. Why would he say that? That when we steal his glory, even in suffering, even in hurting, when we take all the attention for ourselves to whine and complain and get everyone's sympathy instead of giving him glory for our life. 
there's a lot to be said about uh, Johnny Erickson, Tata, who has been in a wheelchair since she was, what, 17? Uh, and she's uh, always seems to be somebody who praises the Lord. She's, she's an upfront person, so you, you, know, you might say, well, she puts the show on. No, she's genuine. But I've always put my focus on Chrissy uh, Warner, uh, who in a like manner has this joyful side to her that's mysterious to me, to be in a wheelchair and give honor and glory to Christ and live in such a positive way. There's something about a person who lives like that that's so attractive and it's so hopeful. And if God heals certain people and gets them out of wheelchairs just for the sake of healing them, there's something lost in the testimony of someone who suffers. And yet, so what we do, we strip God away of his power. Whether he, if he doesn't heal, we say something's wrong. It's either us or it's God. Or if, if, if God does heal us, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's great, but it's great and then eventually forgotten. But either one, if God chooses to heal or not, I trust that we understand that God is victorious in either one, and he's to be ultimately glorified by both. Uh, one other one addition to this, if I can, is in, Luke, in, in John 11. Can we go there? And one more thing that he says here that caught my attention. This we also teach and believe here. Jesus is coming to the funeral of his friend, Lazarus. In verse 24, the sister of Lazarus, Martha, says to him, I know that he, that is my brother, he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She responds, yes, Lord, watch her answer. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. She didn't answer him. Well, yeah, of course, that's who he is, but that's not what he asked. He's asking, do do you believe that if someone believes in me, they won't die? She didn't respond to that. She's dealing with a reality. Well, my brother just died. So, you know, I, on the one hand, I might say, yes, uh, I believe in who you are, but she's left, left off the whole sense of believing in what he's saying is true. And that, that happens to so many Christians. It's so easy to say from a distance, well, I believe that Jesus can do anything and he can heal anyone, or I believe that Jesus can raise uh, the dead. Uh, I believe that he's coming again and uh, in a res- uh, not only resurrection, but resurrecting us. Uh, you can say all of that, but like Martha, sometimes what we do is we dodge the issue and say, well, I believe in Jesus as the Christ, but we can't get it out that I believe he can heal me. I, I, I don't know for sure if I, I can't say that I have the faith that he can affect and change my life. It seems like that's never going to happen. And so we still falter back on that weakness. Conversation goes on and he comes down to verse 38. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, here again, here's Martha. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. And look what Jesus says to her. This is the rebuke to all of us this morning. Wait a minute. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? There's the uh, amazing, exhortative, direct question uh, that he asks each one of us. It's a confrontive question. Did I not say? Have you not read? Uh, Do you not understand? I mean, all those things that he says to us. If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And I want to just remind us that that is a key component here that we teach and preach that if you believe in him, no, irregardless of everything else, that there is this sense of his uh, effective work in us, that if you believe, the, the glory of God will be manifested in your life. If you believe, do you believe? 
I want to challenge you this morning with this. If you're a listener that maybe has not had a relationship with Christ and you're not sure if he's real, I want to say, if you believe, he promises you, you'll see the glory of God. For you as a Christian, if you have been a Christian a long time and you've lost the sense of, of the, the reality and the glory of knowing Christ and you hear us say words, these are not my words, these are his words as he asks you with his finger pointed in your face, did I not say to you in my word that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? And some of you are still laying back and you're not living in victory because you've lost the sense of that. And I'm just saying, he's still saying that to you. Nothing's changed except you're still not believing. We teach this because we believe this. Let's look on chapter 12 of John. We're actually there. Let me, let me show you another verse that's in here. Let's go move ahead to, toward the end of the chapter. Again, Jesus says some statements that are exhortative to us. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, verse 44 Verse 45, he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. See, all these things are connected. All these thoughts are connected. That if Jesus Christ is the core of your life, that he's got to affect you. So much so that even if you're living in a world of darkness, and, and when I think about darkness, I don't think necessarily about a room with a light off. I'm thinking about the darkness in our hearts. I'm thinking about dark places that we have in our lives. Depression comes out of darkness. Depression camps uh, wants us to camp out in darkness and cause us to have not only darkness, but then a sense of, of loneliness and a sense of, of fear and a, a, a sense that uh, no one else sees, no one else cares. I'm, I'm in this for the long haul by myself. I can't get out of this. I, there are chains of darkness that hold us down. All those kinds of ideas. He's the light. He says to, to us, I have come as a light and he, whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We believe in exhortative words that come from the Lord. And those exhortative words oftentimes are hard words. And this is a hard word. And it's reminding us that there is uh, a day of uh, uh, reckoning for us. Those who, who reject or do not, are not interested in God's words. I, I want to just, uh, we don't do this often, but I want to take you to uh, the end of the story in Revelation 20. Can I do this? As people are standing around God's throne at the end of time. Now, Jesus has, as we know, has already gone to heaven, and, uh, but we are waiting for his soon return. And when he does return, the Word of God says in uh, 19, chapter 19 of Revelation, uh, verse 16, that he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, he wins the battles against the, the world and the system that's against him and so on. And he's victorious. Uh, who knows how many countless people have died in battles against God in chapter 20. Uh, lots of events taking place. These are all just, you know, again, heavenly things taking place. Angels come and angels, says the angel binds up, uh, throws in the bottomless pit, the, the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil. That's verse 2. Uh, bound him for a thousand years, cast him in the bottomless pit, shut him up and set a seal on him. So you have that taking place. But when we get down to uh, uh, time goes by and we get down to verse 11 and there's this interesting picture. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. 
that is earth and heaven. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. You know, God is the, uh, if God can create the universe and the worlds and all that there is in six days as we believe, then God can certainly have the capacity to keep a record of you and I. That's the least of his abilities to do that. And again, we, we, we uh, talk about, like in the last uh, few months, politics and you know, the whole thing of going back in someone's life and finding out things about them and the tentacles of our lives are out there somewhere and you can try to, you can try to hide or cut off or make uh, or delete things in your life today. Uh, uh, our computer technology has, has given us this false assumption that we can delete everything in our lives that we want no one to see. But the fact is that everything we do and say and think is known in heaven and is written down. And we don't have a shred of fear about that. And here in the word, something else that we believe and teach here is that there's a day of reckoning. And it says here that books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Now, this is talking about, now, when this is, we're reading this, this is talking about all those who, we'll see in a moment, all those who do not believe in Jesus, all those who have chosen to not follow Jesus, all those who have neglected uh, Jesus, or all who have not believed he was God. Whatever, however you want to slice it, that's what's happening here. These works are judged. And then verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Can you imagine over the centuries how many people died at sea in battles and all kinds of issues, sunken ships? Sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Every person who's died. I always remind people that all those uh, from atheists to disbelievers who say there's no resurrection, you guys are ridiculous, uh, and Christians talk about the rapture and ra- raising, being raised from the dead, and we're all talking happy thoughts about that. And I want to remind every Christian here, every unsaved person, every person who's denied God, every person who's agnostic to atheist, who doesn't think there's anything to do with a resurrection, is going to be raised from the dead themselves to stand before God. Whether you believe it or not, the Bible says that's going to happen. You and I as followers are not in this particular picture. This is about those who have rejected him, and he's still going to hold them accountable. And so it says here that, uh, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Uh, we, we joke about, uh, that's kind of a joke, we joke about Lazarus, I'm, I'm thinking, what was Lazarus, when, when Lazarus was called to, awake, to be awakened, what do you think was going through his mind? I, I, I just think that's such a, a sort of a humorous moment. He's wrapped up in grave clothes, and Lazarus, and he wakes up. I just, I just can't imagine that picture. We, we, you know, we, we, we think it's glorious, but it had to have been horrendous for a moment. I mean, he's still in grave clothes. He's still all covered up. He, he's, a mum, he's like a mummy. He's trying to move, and he's trying to hobble out of the tomb, you know, to, to get out of here. And, and as he's doing it, and then there's guys grabbing him and then trying to cut the stuff off, you know, and get, get his eyes open and so on. And, uh, but here's what I'm dealing with. But you have to do it over again. You still have to die again. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then judgment. So as wonderful as it was for me to have this experience where I died a few times and got awakened a few times, and, and here I am to talk about it, I have to do it over again. <laughs> That's not fun. So I'm like, I'm already telling the Lord, can we try another way now? Let's do something different. You know, I don't want to do the same thing over again. I already know what that's like. Let's, let's try something new. So, wow. That's kind of scary. 
Here in our text, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone, it says, not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I had to do this. I could not pass this because this is that which we believe and teach. These are exhortative statements that if you do not understand the repercussions of these truths, you're going to glide and slide through life without any deep sense of accountability or any yearning to be delivered from such a drastic, horrible end. Some of the uh, great names of people who were either atheist or agnostic in their death, on their deathbed experiences have called on God, knowing this verse, this truth, in their last hours, and have called on God for deliverance. Because there's this confrontive truth that is graciously given to us because God does not want it. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he doesn't want you to die with this truth hanging over your head. Our God is an awesome God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a loving Christ who wants to have this relationship with us where he sets us free. I'm almost done. Let me go to John 14. Let me back up to John 14. Because, again, talking about this uh, thing of life after death, he's in a conversation with, again, his followers and uh, continuing in this sort of thought about the future. He makes these statements. I remember when my son, Philip, had to memorize this. We were at First Baptist Church in Philly. And he had to recite this, John 14, verses 1 through 6. It was a big deal for parents, you know. Uh, But to have uh, these words ring out, they're such wonderful words for us. But they're such important truths for us. Let not your heart be troubled. This is an exhortative counsel to us and encouragement to us do you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you will be also and where I go you know in the way you know We believe here and teach this, that there is a tangible heavenly home, a place that you can see, feel, and touch that's being prepared for you and for me. We believe that. Now, again, uh, what we do not believe is that there's this cloud in the sky waiting to scoop you up, and you're going to sit on this cloud with your harp and strum for all eternity, the same chord. Boing, boing, for all eternity, floating around. Maybe you'll jump or hop a few clouds. Maybe you can learn how to do that. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, but that is not a picture of what's happening for us. There is a place, a home, a place being prepared for us by the one who flung this universe into place in six days. If you think he could pull that off, do you think he does not have a fabulous uh, a mindset about what he has structured for you and I to dwell in for eternity? We, again, we minimize, we minimize the power of God by not believing wholeheartedly certain truths. But I'm telling you, this is what we teach and believe here. This statement given to us to encourage us in our faith. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Does that not encourage you? That is an exhortative statement that says to the church of Jesus Christ, You're so important to me that I am taking my time and making a place for you. What I did with heaven and earth and all the universe in six days is nothing compared to what I've done for centuries in preparing a place for you. I don't know about you, but I I dwell on that and I, I can hardly imagine how exciting that'll be. Over in verse 21, he I want to finish with this. In chapter 14. 
Jesus is speaking here again, and uh, he's talking about a little while longer, verse 19, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Great statement. At that day, you will know me and uh, that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. And that he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself in him. I wanted to end with this because that's how it started. God started by saying, you need to love me. You need to love me in your heart. And here's Jesus on the tail end of that saying to all of us, we need to keep his commandments to demonstrate that we do love him. The key issue is, do we love him? And if we love him, it's demonstrated by, you know, not all the things that we can say and do and uh, in the flurry of life. But it, if we really love him, it's, it, it's demonstrated by our desire to do what his exhortative statements have called us to do. His divine word directing and, and instructing us and leading us and guiding us and encouraging us. And as we respond to that, it demonstrates whether we actually love him or not. The test is clear. If you love Jesus Christ, how could you and would you not follow him and obey him in all that he said? We believe these statements because they are life-changing for us, and we preach them here, and we do not apologize for his truth. And I trust that all of you with me would say amen to that. That is who we are, and that is what we believe. And if you're new to Alpine, I was trying to strike at the core of our heart today, that it's God's word, who he is and his word that has vitally affected us and changed us. If you look beneath the surface, that's hopefully who we are. It's his word in us that makes us who we are. And it's not something we've made up. It's not some kind of sham that we live to impress anyone. It's the truth that without his word in us, we have nothing in and of ourselves. And we give him all the glory for that. Amen.